Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, we got I got two more boxes here. Okay. I guess is is there um anybody got one? Are they good for reading? Okay. So um yeah, these are what was that cartoon character Dilbert? These are like the Dilbert glasses. Um, I, I bring this up because you know, two weeks ago when we the last sermon that I did was um, the healing of the blind man, right? And it was that two-step healing in which Jesus spits on the man and touches his eyes, and the guy looks up and he says, right? He's like, I see people, but it's not very clear, right? They look like trees walking around. You with me on that? And we talked about, like, you know, what happened? Did Jesus lose his touch? Did he not do the right formula? Um, was it something wrong? But we said that one of the things that you learn about this, this, this healing is that when it's isolated, it gets a bit puzzling, right? Like, what's going on? Why does it, Jesus need two steps? Why couldn't he heal him the first time? Why is he doing all this stuff? But when you put it in context of this kind of what we're going to discuss, chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10, um, it's really a, plays a critical role in the unfolding narrative as we kind of come, come about it, right? It's in some senses an enacted parable, right? It's Jesus um, doing this as a way to show of what's coming. Or, and, and Mark is using this in, in, his, in his gospel to say, look, you, we're going to see this at play coming up, right? And it happens in the very next passage. Again, this is so linked to the very next passage, and it's linked to a, a lot that's going to happen over the next couple couple weeks And as we study the, the Gospel of Mark. But put on your reading glasses, because we're going to read together. Mark chapter 8, 27, verses 9-1. It's on page 705. I'm going to actually, just, do they work? I mean, I mean, I guess I know they work, but. Okay, so you have to be like right here. Okay. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Maybe, it's, I mean, Jill and Rob, you guys would probably remember like in the, in a lot of times kind of maybe in my earlier preaching, I would always figure out some sort of prop. Yeah. You know what I mean? I always had some sort of prop or something like that. Yeah, there's a whole can, there's ladders, there's this, there's that, and it's just like, I, I always kind of like got over props for a little bit, but I'm back, baby. I'm back with, with real props. All right, 27 through, through 9-1. Gosh, I'm, okay. Who wants to start us off? Philippi. Philippi. Yep. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others to be one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elder, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called to the crowd to him along his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay, excellent. Remember, we're going to use this, you know, this, again, this kind of two-step, this enacted parable, this two-step healing. Again, it's going to kind of define what's, what's coming up, and we're going to see it here. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about this, too, especially this first, the, these first couple verses, is, is we're going to see the parallels that Mark is trying to, to, exam, to point out right away, right? You have, you have the blind man who is kind of taken away. He's led outside the village, right? And then Jesus takes his disciples. When, when he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, that is definitely taking them away from where they would normally be, right? That was kind of out of bounds, right? Like if, if, if they had their village, if they had their tribe around the lake of Gal, uh, you know, the Sea of Galilee, you know, to take them up to Caesarea Philippi, which would be Gentile Terria, territory, both are taken away, right? Then both receive partial vision, then full vision, right? The blind man says, I see people, they look like trees, and then Jesus touches them again, and his eyes are open, right? Um, in the second passage, what we read this morning, people say like, yeah, Jesus, we kind of see you, like, I, I think you're a prophet, maybe like John the Baptist, maybe like Elijah, you know, like something like that. And then Peter says, no, 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 you're the Messiah, Right? And so, again, there's kind of like this partial vision. Ah, Jesus, you're probably like a prophet. And then Peter is like this full vision of seeing Jesus as the Messiah. And then in both passages, Jesus is going to insist on secrecy, right? To to the man, he says, hey, go home, but don't go into the village. Like, stay away from that, right? And to the disciples, or to Peter, after Peter confesses that he's the Messiah, he's like, yeah, but I don't want you to tell anybody about this, okay? So... As we kind of look at these passages, just I want to I want to go over three terms real quick. Um, I want to go over prophet, I want to go over Messiah, and I want to go over Son of Man because these three terms are kind of important to how we understand Jesus and what He's trying to do. So, the, the word prophet. A lot of times when we hear this word prophet, I don't even know. I just found this off Google Images, but you know, a lot of people think about prophets or or prophecy as like just predicting the future right? Like a prophet is kind of like this future seer who looks into the future, bringing the future into focus through the lens of scripture, right? And they kind of look in there and they're able to like discern what's going to happen. And, you know, like a lot of times that's what we think about, like what a prophet or some sort of prophecy would, would do, right? The biblical understanding of a prophet is 
Someone who would speak the truth to power, right? Someone who speaks the truth to power, who stands up and speaks to those in power. And usually they're, they're speaking on behalf of those who are excluded or marginalized or suffering, right? And so you have a prophet who's, who's like raising the fist to those in power. They are calling out unrighteousness, right? Um, was it two weeks ago that the quote from N.T. Wright about the, the problem in Jeremiah's day was that people had just become uh, obsessed, I think it says obsessed with their own concerns and had forgotten about the wickedness and the unrighteousness in society, right? Prophets call out the wickedness and the unrighteousness. They make a stand against those things. Occasionally, prophets would do miracles or they would do signs, right? We can think about Elijah in the Old Testament. He calls down fire from heaven, right? Elijah um, raises a woman's son, the great prophet, although we don't necessarily think about him as a prophet, the scriptures would view him as a prophet, would be Moses, right? Moses leading the, the people through the wilderness. Um, think about the, the signs and the miracles that he did in the wilderness or um, when he's in Egypt and he does the, you know, the 10 plagues, right? Those kind of miracles. But prophets then also are unorthodox, right? They kind of are always, again, because they have their hand up against a system and they're, they're standing up and they're, doing, they're often unorthodox. And if you look at Jesus' ministry up until this point, right, from what you've read and what we've studied and what we've learned, this is pretty much the category I'd put him in, right? Jesus like, who do people say that I am? Well, yeah, you're speaking the truth to power, like you're standing up against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You're calling out the unrighteousness that you see in society. You do a couple miracles and signs here and there and really your kind of methods and the way that you're doing all these things is pretty unorthodox right so to see jesus like this right which again people are seeing him like this and it's like yeah that's kind of who you are but to see jesus like this is is pretty fuzzy right it's you can't you're, you're not seeing him clearly for who he is right and this is this is again as jesus we're seeing this kind of two-step so to speak healing yeah, Jesus, you're a prophet. And she's like, ah, okay, like that's part, of, that's part of who I am, but that's not who I am, right? So then Peter has this great confession, right? Peter speaks up and he says, I know who you are. You're the, the Christ, right? Now, this word Christ, does it say Christ in, in your guys' passages? Oh, the Messiah, okay. Some of, some of the passages will say Christ. Some of them will say Messiah. Here's why. Christ is the Greek word, right? It comes from the... Um, from the Hebrew word Messiah, it, it means an anointed one, right? A Messiah would be an anointed one. And the way that they would understand this kind of Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one, it was a true God-appointed king of Israel, right? From the lineage of King David. And they would think of this Christ, of this Messiah, right? As a liberator, we think about Jesus Christ as the divine redeemer. That's not how they would have seen um, the Messiah, the Christ, right? It would, um, this, this true God-appointed king of Israel, again, from the lineage of David. Let me go to a timeline here to, to kind of show you this. I know it's a little hard to read, right? But you have, you have here, you know, the great, the great king David, 
who unites the, the northern and the southern tribes, brings everyone together. This is about a thousand years before Christ, right? Has his son Solomon. This is the peak of the Israelite kingdom, right? So everybody in Jesus' day over here are still looking back as, as like this is when Israel was great, right? Like if there was the slogan to make Israel great again, this would be the, the time period that they would look for. Like we got to get back here. Right? This is where we want to go. So they, as they're thinking, like as, as Peter's making this confession of the Christ, they're thinking here. Right? They're not thinking of a divine redeemer. They are thinking, and here's, here's one of the things that's, that kind of makes this passage a little tricky. right? Because you have here, you know, oh yeah, you're a prophet. right? And, and, and you're kind of fuzzy to see Jesus in that way. Like it's just kind of this unorthodox teacher, you know, standing up to power, those sorts of things. And then you kind of have Peter saying like, no, 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 you're the Christ, right? So it's kind of like, wow, now he's seeing Jesus clearly. But it's funny, even in Peter's confession of the Christ, right? It's this, right? Even though Peter has, has like taken another step of healing, of seeing Jesus rightly, he, he still has these glasses on. Because the way, again, the way that, that you know, again, this, this kind of partial vision and full vision, right? Um, yeah, you're a prophet, you're a, you're a Messiah. Peter's vision of the Messiah is likely shaped by the general view outline in his time, view, and culture, right? His Messiah would have been somebody who's going to bring, here's the, three, here's the three main characteristics. Political liberation, Right? Remember, the Israelites are, are dominated and ruled by Rome, right? So there's political liberation. There's geographic liberation, right? Going back to David, they had their own kingdom, their own land, their own space, right? Um, so it would be political liberation. It would be geographic liberation. It would be economic liberation, right? So again, even Peter's view of the Messiah, oops, even Peter's view of the Messiah is like, yeah, yeah, this Messiah is going to bring us political, um, geographic, economic. He is going to take us back to when Israel was great, right? That's what he's going to do. So even in this passage, like you kind of see Peter, he's making that, that step forward of seeing Jesus clearly. But even that step forward, it's maybe like going from a four point, what are those, four, four X or 4.0? So maybe he goes from like a 4.0 to like a, I don't know, 2.0 or, or, or whatever. So even that is still not all the way clear. You with me so far on that? Um, the next term I want to discuss is this term, son of man, right? So Peter says, yes, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, okay, thanks for, you know, don't tell anybody about this. And then it says, the Bible says that he began to, he began to teach them that the son of man, right, the son of man. It's this phrase that Jesus uses often about himself, the son of man. And he, he pulls this again from, from the prophet Daniel, right? He pulls this from Daniel and Daniel has a vision in which he is, in this case, he is seeing something within the future or he is seeing something kind of beyond the realm of, of the natural, of the physical. So Daniel has this vision, right? And in his vision at night, he looks, and there before standing, standing uh, before me was one like the Son of Man, right? The Son of Man. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion was everlasting, uh, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So you have this image that, that this 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 character or this, this person, this son of man is going to the ancient of days. The ancient of days, you know, kind of substitute in there Yahweh, God, right? So it's, it's almost, you know, as we would understand it from the New Testament, this son of man, Jesus, is approaching, is approaching God and God is bestowing upon him like all this power and authority and dominion, Right? And he's like given all this, like everybody's worshiping him. The nations are bowing down to him, right? So you see this image of the son of man with, again, like if you wanted somebody who's a military leader, right? Who's powerful, who's going to have everybody worshiping him. Everybody's going to bow down, right? You, you would have this son of man character. But then Jesus does something really interesting as he defines who he is, as he kind of clarifies the vision of who he is, is he takes this imagery of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, right? And he's going to combine it with the imagery, again, of, of another prophet of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53, you know, it'd be interesting if Jesus were in this room, right? And you will be able to ask him, Jesus, what are some of the most important passages of the Bible to you, right? I think that these would be some of the most important passages of the Bible that Jesus would know, right? The, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, the Suffering Servant of Isaiah 53. Because Jesus takes these two passages, and this is kind of really how he's defining who he is. How he wants people to see him, right? And I want us to read because... Um, I, I read this Isaiah 53, I think, I think I got like, I think it's three slides, okay? And I put just all the text up on here. I put it in the message. It's a little bit easier to understand in the message translation. But again, we're going to combine this imagery, this authority and power and strength and dominion with the suffering servant. So let me read this to us here. This is Isaiah 53, the whole chapter, Okay. Isaiah says this, he says, Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and, and people turned away. We looked down at him and thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought that he had brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. He took the punishment. And that made us whole. This great line, right? By his wounds we have been healed. 
Through his bruises we get healed. We are all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've done our own thing, gone our own way. God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered. Like a sheep to being sheared. He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he never hurt a soul or said a word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he get, well, the plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and he'll be glad he did it. Though what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honor, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of the black sheep. Okay, again, just that whole passage, a a stunning passage. But again, what Jesus is doing, right? We've, we've kind of looked at this word prophet, son of man. He's taken, this, he's taken this concept of the son of man or the, the authority of the son of man, right? Again, think of the words that we're using that Daniel 7 passage. Authority, dominion, all nations worshiping him, power, strength, right? And he's combining it with, with the suffering, right? Messiah's, Peter's Messiah, right? Peter's Messiah, the Messiah that he's thinking of, are the ones who make their enemies suffer, right? Somebody who comes in power and strength and liberation. Messiahs would make their enemies suffer. But Jesus is saying, I understand my vocation, not as making somebody suffer, but actually suffering for my enemies, right? Messiah's power and authority, again, would bring about that geographic Liberation, And you can see that that battle, even today as we're thinking about it, right? Well, it's still that battle over land in the Middle East, right? They still want this piece of land or that piece of land, and they're fighting about these pieces of land, right? Messiah's power and authority would bring about that geographic liberation. Think about what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is bringing cosmic liberation, right? Jesus, as Tim Keller says, the Messiah isn't saying, I'm coming to fight. And I'll be defeated, right? Like that kind of martyr, like we're going to give it our all. We're going we're gonna, to, you know, do everything. He's saying, I have, think about this. I've come to be defeated, right? I've come to lose and to die. Now, this quote by Keller, I was thinking about this a little bit this week because this is, this is what gets Peter all riled up, right? This is why Peter then says, no, 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 uh, you know, Peter, Peter's rebuking Jesus, right? Which is like, is, is basically like the equivalent of saying, Jesus, you are wrong about this, right? 
Because Jesus is saying, I, I've come to lose and to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus, you are wrong about this, right? And here, here's, here's the, like the modern day analogy. Um, since we were talking about your chargers this morning, I'm going to use your chargers. Okay. You guys hire a new coach, whoever it is, right? The new coach is whoever, right? The new coach is uh, Vince Lombardi, okay? Just for, you hire this new coach, and the new coach stands up at the press conference, and he makes this bold claim, I'm here to lead these men to the Super Bowl, and our highest goal will be to lose in the Super Bowl. That is why I am here to lead these men, right? Or your coach stands up and says, I am here to lead this team, and my goal each and every week is to snatch victory, or wait, snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory, right? I am leading these men to lose, right? Or, what's that? <laughs> or second place. Or, I was thinking about the Olympics coming up, right? Our greatest hope is that we could get last place. Like, that's what we are here for. I am leading us this, you know, and this is, this is what Jesus is saying. Like, I've come to lose. I've come to die. I've come to be defeated. And Peter's saying, that's, you're wrong, Jesus. We are not doing this, right? And this is then why Jesus, he turns it on him and says, you don't understand what, you're, what, what, I'm, what I'm here for, right? You haven't seen clearly, right? Peter's still seeing Jesus with this Messiah eye, with these glasses of the Messiah is going to be the triumph, the victor, the champion, the liberation. And Jesus is like, I am, but, but not the way that you're seeing me, right? So one last thing. Well, the, the last section I want to talk about, right? The prophet, the Messiah, the Son of Man. The question then becomes, how do we know if we're seeing Jesus clearly, right? Like, how do you know if you're seeing Jesus clearly, right? Like, or are you, I think there's a big problem, not only within, um, well, it's always been a problem, right? It's been a problem with Peter, and it's a problem for us this morning. Like, how do we know if we're seeing Jesus clearly? And I, I came, there's a couple things that I, I want to say about this. Because I would say the way that you know that you're seeing Jesus clearly is Jesus just, just lays it out flat out for us when he talks about his call to discipleship in verses 33 through 38, right? Verses, let's just reread those real quick. This is, this is how you'll know you're seeing Jesus is clearly. And then I'll just make a couple comments on them, right? And I want to start at 33 um, because Jesus um, turns and he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter, Right? And he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he, then he teaches the way of the cross, the way of discipleship. He calls his crowd to him uh, along with his disciples. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So how do you know you're seeing Jesus clearly? This is, this is what it is right here. Jesus just lays it out like when you're living according to these verses. And I started in verse 33 there because I think one of the first things that we can do is like kind of get behind Jesus, 
right? Um, and just to, to go back a few weeks ago and just to kind of loop back to that, man, I think that Lectio Divina or just practicing that, that Lectio Divina, right? Lectio Divina, again, the refresh of the refresh, a couple verses, God, what are you speaking to me? What's jumping off the page? Why are you speaking that to me? What now, right? And you're just allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you, right? Your Holy Spirit, Jesus, you're somewhere in front of me. I am behind you responding to what you've spoken to me, right? And, and taking that step along with you behind you, right? So again, just simply getting behind Jesus, right? This is, you know, Peter gets all out in front of Jesus. Jesus, we're not going to do this Messiahship the way that you want to do it. That's hard to focus right now, isn't it, too, with those beautiful voices going on. We can just, I can, even for me, like I'm zoned in, I'm trying to like stay in it, but let's just, let's just hear it for a second. Let's get a little preview. I hear Josie. Yeah, Yeah. Brian? Yeah. Ooh, that's a tough one right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, how do we know we're seeing, like, somewhere at some level, you're behind Jesus. How do you be behind Jesus? I, I really have been meditating and just thinking about, about this Lectio Divina. What, why, and what now, right? What are you speaking to me, God? Why are you speaking that to me? What do you want me to do now? Just responding in prayer, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you. And then Jesus really gets into his words on discipleship. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he's got to follow, he's got to follow me. He has these verses. I got a little intermission here because this was, this is a great story. Um, I don't think it would matter if we shut the door. I mean, those kids are really going after it back there. I mean, it's just like... Is the door shut? It doesn't feel like the door's shut, but... <laughs> I think we are all adults here, and we can just manage the best that we can. Here's my intermission. I'm sitting in my... I'm sitting uh, having lunch this week, and I have my salad. Do you guys know I'm like a big salad guy? I love my salad at lunchtime. I have a book that I'm reading, which is just... Um, it's called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. It's about that... Um, the guy from the Vietnam War who goes to Vietnam to deliver beer to his buddies. Um, so I'm reading, eating my salad. I'm reading the greatest beer run ever. And, uh, and I'm, my mind's also processing the sermon. And here's what I felt like the Lord at least really put on my heart. And I wanted to share this. And here, I'll put it right here. Here's my intermission. Like, how central to your life with Christ are these verses? Right? Jesus says, you want to see me clearly. Here's my call to discipleship. Here's my call to follow you. Right? How central to my life, and I'm just kind of put it to each one of us, are these verses? Now, as a church, we've kind of made like our church verse or whatever, to love God and to love one another, which kind of gives us the warm fuzzies. Or, you know, maybe it's we love 1 Corinthians 13, right? We love, oh, that love verse is so special. <laughs> or, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, or, you know, the Romans 8, nothing can separate us from God, right? And again, like, kind of some of those, maybe Jesus' healing, his restoration, all the stuff that makes us feel, like, kind of warm and fuzzy, and we like this. But again, as I was sitting there, 
eating my salad, reading my book, and this thought comes into my brain, Eric, how central to your life with Christ? Like, what position, what power do these verses have? Because sometimes we look at these verses and we're like, ooh, uh, denial, losing my life, cross, you know, boldness of God's word. You know, it's just like, eh. But again, like to see Jesus clearly, I was really personally challenged. Like, God, these, these words right here have to jump off the page to me, have to be foundational, have to be strong within my life, right? So I think that we're seeing G- Jesus clearly at some level. We're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us, to stay behind him. We're not jumping in front of him and saying, this is what I got to do, this is what, Right? I think these verses really become central in your life with Christ, right? They really become something that you meditate on, that you think about, that you consider, that way on your heart, right? Jesus talks about self-denial, right? He says, um, he says uh, here, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him right? Uh, and, you know, he, he says, he says that, that self-denial is just your selfish interest, your concerns, thinking about yourself and what you want. And and I was, for me, I'm asking myself and I'm asking us in our church, can we unequivocally point to areas in your life in which self-denial is evident, Right? You want to see Jesus clearly. You want to see him for who he is, right? Can you unequivocally point to areas in your life in which self-denial is evident? There is nothing, not nothing. There is very little in our culture that teaches us this, right? That enforces self-denial, right? Um, A couple examples might be, Lord, I really want to buy X. And I was, you know, obviously we can, huh? We can joke about X being um, uh, the, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Lord, I really want to buy X, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Just whatever, fill in the blank, right? God, I really want to buy that. You know, that's, that's oh man, I really want that. That's cool. That, but I'd rather give that money towards someone in need, right? You know, there's, there's this, I don't know. You know, for me, it's always like bike stuff or coffee stuff. I want, I want to go buy that stuff. No, I'm, I'm not going to buy. I'm going to deny myself that new, shiny, whatever. And I'll give that money. I'll take that money and I'll give it to someone in need, right? You know, sometimes, and this one actually kind of works. I'm ready to just zone out on X, which is also known as Twitter. Um, so maybe some of you like to do that. You just like to go on Twitter and scroll for a while. Um, you know, I'm ready to zone out on that TV show that um, just kind of scroll, whatever, you know, I'm just right, the book, the magazine, you know, but instead I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to go take a walk and pray instead, right? Here's something that actually happened to me this week. That person is so draining. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to spend time with that person. I have zero interest. Like I said, it happened to me this week and I was praying this week with the power of the Holy Spirit, I will love and serve them, Right? And again, Jesus says that if you want to see him clearly, there will be areas in your life that, again, going back to this, 
I can unequivocally point to that and say, I deny that area of my life, right? It's evident for Jesus, for the gospel, um, for my relationship with Christ. This is a little bit of a challenging sermon this morning. I hope you guys are all right with so far. Um, the, the second, the last one, actually there's kind of two more. But, you know, then he says, you know, what, what can you gain in exchange for your soul, right? What good is it if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? What can you gain in exchange for your soul? Now, this is kind of the selling our soul, gaining the world, um, paradigm. You know Adarius. You know Adarius. Who else knows Adarius? Do you know Adarius? Is Adarius your mailman? No, he's not your mailman. Um, Darius is one of the local mailmen. Darius has this, and I don't even know why I'm bringing this up, other than it's just that Darius is convinced, our, our, the mailman, who him and I have this great, he's an Eagles fan, I'm a Cowboys fan, we have this great banter. Um, he's convinced that Jerry Jones sold his soul to gain the third Super Bowl. So Jerry Jones wins two Super Bowls with Jimmy Johnson. He fires Jimmy Johnson. He hires a new coach, Barry Switzer, this is back in the 90s. Sometime in between the firing of this coach and the hiring of this coach, he sells his soul to the devil. <laughs> you can ask him about this to get the third Super Bowl. <laughs> it's, no, he, he says that he says his, he sold his soul. He'll never get, like, I'll never see another, Jerry will never see another Super Bowl. So I have to wait until Jerry Jones dies to potentially see another Super Bowl because his soul has been sold to the devil. This is, I mean, it's not my words, it's his, it's his words, right? A lot of times we think about that kind of selling, you know, Jesus, like, you know, selling your soul, what can you give in exchange for your soul? You gain the whole world, you lose your soul. Um, maybe you've seen this with different corporate entities, right? Or, you know, maybe a celebrity or like somebody like, oh yeah, they were going this way, and then they just completely sold their soul. They just sold out, you know what I mean? And they just kind of... I had, a, I had a bicycling reference in there. I will show you my picture of my bicycle, which will skip that reference. And then I want to, I want to, um, you can ask me about that one later. I want to, I want to use this, this last quote by Tim Keller because it's really helpful to understand a different paradigm of what Jesus is saying, right? Keller says this, we'll end with this. He says, every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, if you acquire or achieve those, then you'll have a self. You'll know you are valuable, right? He points to, Keller was so great about like defining traditional cultures, our individualistic modern cultures. He was so brilliant at like kind of pointing the pitfalls and showing how both work. He says traditional cultures would say that you're nobody unless you have the respectability and legacy of family and children, right? Community neighborhood, tribe, right? Traditional cultures, think about how they work. That's how you know you're valuable. Uh, individualistic in our modern Western cultures, um, it's different. Our culture would say the way that you, you know, you, you know that you're valuable or you have a self is you're nobody unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings you money, reputation, status, relationships, right? Like that's how we kind of say that you're somebody. Regardless of such differences, though, every culture says identity is performance-based, achievement-based. Y'all with me on that? Right? 
Everybody's trying to say, like, hey, this is what you got to do to, to, to achieve uh, performance, right? Jesus says that's never going to work. He says you can gain the whole world. It won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up the stain of insignificance. No matter how many of these things you gain, it's never enough to make you sure of who you are. You're building your identity on somebody loves me. And or you're building on your identity on I've got a good career, right? And if anything goes wrong with that relationship or that job, you'll fall apart. You feel like you don't have a self. He says, are you beginning to see how radical Jesus is? It's not a matter of saying, you know, I've been a failure. I've been immoral. So now I'm going to go to church and become a moral, decent person. Then I'll know I'm a good person because I'm spiritual. Sorry, this is a little bit of a handful, but Jesus says, I don't want you to simply shift from one performance-based identity to another. Let's pause here for a second. I want you to find a whole new way, right? Every culture is going to say like, hey, this is what you got to do. You know, this is how you're going to perform. This is how you're going to achieve. This is how you're going to know yourself. And sometimes people actually just shift that over into religion, right? Jesus is saying, I want you to lose the old self, the old identity, and base yourself and your identity in me and in the gospel. I love the fact that he says, for me and for the gospel. He's reminding us not to be abstract about this. You can't just say, oh, I see. I can't build my identity on my parents' approval because that comes and goes. I can't build my life on my career success. I can't build my life on romance. Instead, I'm going to build my life on God. If that's as far as you take it, God just kind of remains abstract. And so building your life on him is just an act of the will. And no one has ever been deeply changed by an act of the will. Again, it's just performance. I'm going to do this. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, right? Keller's just saying, like, that's what people do. And that just gets transferred right into the church. Keller says this. He says, the only thing that can reforge and change a life at its root is love. Jesus is saying, it's not enough to just know me as a teacher or as an abstract principle. You have to look at my life. I went to the cross and on the cross, I lost my identity so you can have one. Once you see the Son of God loving you like that, once you are moved by that viscerally and existentially, you begin to get a strength an assurance, a sense of your own value and distinctiveness that is not based on what you're doing or whether somebody loves you, whether you've lost weight or how much money you've got, you're free. The old approach to identity is gone. So I would maybe sum this up by saying this. You can look around you. Let's look at around us, right? The way that everybody is striving. That's family, success, relationships, house, cars, morality, politics, power, appearance, looks, religion, spirituality, right? You can gain it all and you can be as empty as ever. The gospel is pointing us in the direction of someone who would love us so deeply, convincingly, and thoroughly that all attempts, like all the ways that we think that I'm just going to do it, all attempts to perform and to strive and to achieve and to gain are just, they're inconsequential. They're trivial, right? It's multiplying that by zero. Everything gets zeroed out, right? 
being lost in the gospel, being lost in God's love is the only thing that can give you strength and assurance and value and footing in this world, right? So again, when Jesus says, you know, to gain the world, yet lose your soul, he's not talking about Jerry Jones selling his soul to the devil. I love the way that Keller did this. He's saying it's all the ways that we try and strive and we have to lose that identity. We have to gain a whole new identity within the gospel, looking at who Jesus is. Um, I think that's about enough for today. Uh, there's a last piece there about boldness too, about, you know, being ashamed of God's words. And I would only say that when you understand this, when you have an identity that's forged within this, that's what gives you the power to be bold. Too often you see people who are just bold and they don't have that. They're being bold in a performance based way, right? They're just trying to, you know, show how powerful they are. And they're like out there, the boldness that the gospel gives you, right, um, is something that's completely different. So let me close in prayer, and we'll do just a little bit of discussion, although I know I went a little bit long this morning. Um, yeah, what was something you learned about? Maybe prophet, Christ, son of man, stood out to you and why? Uh, has Lectio Divina, that kind of concept of getting behind Jesus, uh, given you a new perspective? Have you utilized that? Um, I mean, that, like I said, that was challenging for me. 34 through 38, this call to discipleship, denial, boldness for the gospel, losing our life in Christ. Are they central to your life? How? Name a few areas of your life that you are denying yourself in the name of Jesus. And where do you see the striving, achieving principle in your life? Or, I, again, I think with, with those two, sometimes we can get real individualistic on those. We can think larger about the church. We can think larger about Christianity. So let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll do just a few minutes of discussion. Okay, Lord, um, speak to us and challenge us this morning with the word that you have planted in our heart uh, through this sermon. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.